you know, the, the best possible outcome for Americans ahead of this election is that there is a significant cross-collaboration between all of our news organizations in an effort to present information in a way that people find credible. Disruption continues to be the watchword as newsrooms try to figure out how to survive in the ever-changing digital environment. This week, we talked to someone whose job it is to look 5, 10, 15 years in the future and imagine how technology will shape humanity. I'm Michael O'Connell. You're listening to It's All Journalism. Amy Webb is a quantitative futurist. She's also a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business and founder of the Future Today Institute. Early this year, the Institute rolled out the 12th edition of its Tech Trends Report, and Amy is currently touring the country to promote her latest book, The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. Welcome back to the podcast, Amy. Thank you. So it's been about a year since we last spoke, and you've, you've done quite a lot in a year. Let's start with the 2019 Tech Trends Report. To give some context for our listeners, what, what is it you set out to do every year with the Tech Trends Report? Our annual report started off as a series of very long emails that got sent to clients that uh, we worked with 15 years ago when I first started the Future Today Institute, which at that point had a different name. It was called uh, Web Media Group. And, you know, I was doing the research anyways and was sending out little snippets and updates to all of the clients that we work with, as well as sort of a small circle of friends and, and colleagues. And those emails grew to be very, very long. And so at some point, they became Word documents. I'm kind of <laughs> laughing as I'm saying this because I realize how ridiculous this sounds. At some point, they became Word documents. And then putting all of the little graphics and the, we have a couple of uh, matrices that we use to explain what actions to take became kind of cumbersome. And then somewhere along the way, early on, we had hired a, a, a graphic designer to do other work for us. And um, at some point I thought, this is really dumb. Let's just put together one big annual report and we can send out smaller updates and do this in a more reasonable way throughout the year. So that was 12 years ago. And really the report grew out of, you know, my desire to make sure that everybody was staying more on top of what was happening, but also to get folks to look much more broadly than they're used to looking. So that's where this started. And 12 years later, the report for 2019 has 315 trends. It covers 26 industries. It is close to 400 pages long. And in print, it weighs five and a half pounds. Oh, my God. Uh, well, in the future... You won't be printing it. You'll be delivering it in some other way we haven't quite figured out yet. How far ahead do you look at trends generally? Yeah, the, the trends that are in our report don't probably sound or look like trends that you're maybe used to seeing. So looking at trends and identifying signals is a core part of what a futurist does. But the trends that we look at are in no way trendy. So the titles are a little boring and long. You know, they are not buzzwordy. Instead, they have to meet a certain set of criteria. And the trends that appear on the list, again, are, are sort of just like a part of what we're paying attention to and that we're tracking because we believe that they will ultimately form a constellation of 
seismic shifts that will impact business and you know governing and and media and all kinds of things going forward. So they tend to stay on you know either permanently or they they merge with something else. And most of what we're looking at spans you know twelve months to twenty years. So it, it's a longer outlook. But again, most people are used to thinking in very either very very near terms, like what's the next couple of quarters, or they venture out into sci-fi space, you know, 25 years from now. Realistically, most people and most organizations need to be thinking simultaneously about today, a few years from now, you know, a decade from now and and a few decades from now in order to influence the future in a positive way rather than it having rather than sort of having it show up, you know, and be something you then have to contend with later on. Okay, so we're not going to go down through the entire tech list and go through each industry. Obviously, we don't have that much time. But let's take a look. You know, I pulled some of the uh, media ones. Some of these I recognize from from the last time we talked about the the tech trends report. Others I think have kind of kind of evolved. You know, I think this is something that's going on in media and in, in, in journalism. For example, the end of attention metrics. You know, I've just been watching how people are sort of reinterpreting metrics or have been over the last couple of years. And I think we're kind of moving away from that. What are, what are your th- thoughts on that on that sort of change? Yeah. So part of our so the report is divided into sections and there's a fairly robust section for um, media. And we broke apart journalism from entertainment media and esports so it's 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 pretty big you know measurement is always going to be a core component of monetizing news as it has always been that being said our attention is increasingly fractured across different medium and organizations and even devices and attempting to measure attention you know sort of also means that there's a lot of competition for our attention. And I think consumers have have sort of gotten wise to, to what that ecosystem looks like, and they don't like it, which is why we are starting to see a return to long form. I think that's why podcasts have become very uh, compelling to people. The fact that there are so many different newsletters, you know, these newsletters aren't, the, the good newsletters that are popular aren't short blips of bullet pointed links, you know, their thoughtful analysis. So I, I think that that is in response to what we had been seeing, which was a bunch of tweetable headlines that, you know, sort of in a, the, the upworthy style of writing a headline where you ask a question and the assumption is people are going to be so curious that they can't help themselves but to click. And then once you get that click through, it winds up being a story that's dumb or, you know, just wasn't representative of whatever the headline was. So I think that you know, we're going to have to come up with a different form of measurement, one that's more honest and authentic and truthful. So I think we're in in transition right now. Yeah, I I would agree. A lot of the different people that I've spoken to on the podcast about data analytics in particular, recognize that we just can't, it can't just all be about clicks and about traffic. We We need to, you know, the quality that of time that people spend with it, uh, with a piece of content, you know, getting them to, to do some sort of action. I think you mentioned, you know, the, these sort of hyper clickable headlines. I think we've trained our audience to to, ex- to expect to be disappointed if they see a kind of like like a, a headline that's almost too good to be true. You know, I, I know I still sometimes click on things and I'm still 
kick myself for for <laughs> being unsatisfied with the outcome because I know it's you know it, you know you enter, enter this thing you know the ten things you didn't know about X and uh, it's never anything as good as you hope it would be. Right. So uh, this is but you raise a good point and that's why that's why you have to pay attention to many different things at once if you want to understand plausible futures because you're right. I love what you said. You know, we have trained people to be disappointed. But think of all the other different ways that we're training consumers of information. We're training them that commenting on the story is more valuable or satisfying than ingesting the story and taking a few moments with the story and then offering thoughtful analysis. We've trained people, you know, we've instilled in people, I think, a sense of FOMO, fear of missing out. If we don't latch on to the latest meme, you know, our political system has succumbed to the insanity. And so our attention is now divided in ways that have cut out traditional journalism, who used to be the arbiters of what's important to pay attention to and, you know, what's not. And as you and I are having this very conversation there is a second conversation happening nationally around whether or not Julian Assange is a journalist or not. Um, <laughs> you know, so, but what does all of this point to? I think down the line, it points to a general shift in how people will want to be informed, uh, which is going to continue to evolve whether or not our social media infrastructure um, and and our First Amendment laws decide to, you know, re regardless of what happened in those spaces. Yeah. So two years out, you don't think we're going to solve all these problems, and get all this figured out before the next election, right? Well, well, here, but but I do think that news organizations, many news organizations, are dragging their heels in some critical areas. So I think that if I was a news media executive, I would have a war room in my organization right now to map out where there is risk and where there is opportunity in trying to cover the 2020 election because increasingly the conversation has been wrested from, again, the, the usual suspects and the usual places and is instead happening in other places in ways that I think are ultimately damaging to the future of democracy. So if we assume that journalism is important, which I do, and that journalists play a critical role in a functioning democracy, which I do, you know, then news orgs really need to, to start thinking very seriously about what does misinformation look like 18 months from now? I mean, not even 18 months from now, like 12 months from now. Yeah. You know, what are the distribution channels that are going to matter? And I, I don't see that happening. The most important thing that I don't see happening is collaboration. You know, the, the best possible outcome for Americans ahead of this election is that uh, there is a significant cross collaboration between all of our news organizations in an effort to present information in a way that people find credible. Because let's not forget another thing that we've been trained over the past two years is to immediately discount content from uh, reputable news sources like the Washington Post. Well, well, let's let's go right into one of the other other points uh, about this hyper hyper realistic fake news. I know the scary part of it is you have a technology that can map a face and then you can tie it to a particular 
to particular audio that maybe you you've altered and create a very credible image a talking head of somebody speaking i think we talked about this last year and you know this is something that you've got on your radar this is this is something we need to be paying attention to and this seems like it it would it's something that you could see when you when you think about the lead up to the 2016 election and how much crazy fake content we saw on social media you could very well see you know talking heads saying things that they didn't say you know, influencing people's decision making. But the real scary thing is that I presented research and evidence about this very thing at the Online News Association yeah. conference three years ago. So, so to me, what's scary is not the technology. To me, what's scary is our inaction to do something about that technology. So no, you're not going to suddenly pull the plug on generative adversarial networks and prevent bad actors from creating fake and altered videos that confuse people. We can't stop that. However, we could, again, like, I don't know how many different ways and times to say this, if there was collaboration across the industry and news organizations on their own developed a system of verification rather than relying on Facebook or Twitter to give them a little blue check mark you know, and watermarking videos are doing, I mean, there, there are other ways to, to combat this problem. A great way not to combat the problem is to keep acknowledging that it's possible to generate videos that look very credible, but are in fact completely falsified and made up and then not do anything about it. I mean, that's crazy. It's crazy to me that news organizations keep reporting on this story and yet there is no significant action to do anything about it. This is not something new. This is something you've talked about, you've warned people about. I remember people kind of jaws dropping at the ONA conference when when you talked about this. But, you know, it would be nice if somebody had sort of moved and there'd been some sort of action. But you've you've presented a couple of, of you know, possibilities of how to address it, you know, from the verification aspect of it. And I know you've also, one of the other points in, in the tech trends is about coming up with ways to sort of automate verification. But one of the other things I want to talk about, and you sort of alluded to it earlier when you mentioned podcast and newsletters and niche networks, this sort of one to few, to few publishing. This is something, you know, I'm I'm, hey, podcast, great. I'm glad to see this is kind of mentioned in this, in this as, as something that, hey, this is something that, that that's happening. I think, I think it goes into what you were saying before. People want quality content, and they don't want something that's necessarily from a huge broadcast organization. They want something that they they feel is genuine. I mean, which is one of the every time I talk to podcasters that uh, you know these podcasting conventions, you know, gen, real and genuine, and those are the words that, that come out of it. And, and that's the thing that a lot of the audiences react to. You know, I got into podcasting. I started listening to podcasts because I was just sick and tired of all the bullshit I was hearing on on radio. Right. And so, again, like, I just wonder if that's a response to for very, you know, sometimes in order to understand the future, you, you've got to go back. you got to go backwards. Yeah. And so our media industry started off with personality, you know, and then over time, there was sort of a must be objective, must insert zero opinion, right? And again, like the, the pendulum is constantly swinging. So the antidote to that became MSNBC and Fox News, where you have polarizing content because people wanted something more than totally objective, personality-free storytelling. You know, in the wake of the insanity that we are now seeing, among our broadcast media that are politically motivated on, on both sides, 
what are we seeing? A swing back now to niche networks, one to few publishing, podcasting where, to be fair, you know, there are plenty of very popular podcasts where there's strong political opinions and, and, you know, expression, but done in a much more personal way. Why? Because we want to connect with people to help sort out all of the uncertainty around us and to help us create some order around all of the disarray. You know, what comes after this? Probably we swing once again over a period of years back out to bigger, broader networks. You know, at some point, the appetite for vitriol is going to subside and we're going to want some return to just give me the news without the opinion. And that's going to coincide with an era of automation where we have more robust capabilities to have content automatically generated, you know, which could potentially mean problems for for journalists and for news orgs. You mentioned automation, and it makes me think about one of the other things you talk about, where one of the points you have, iTeams for algorithms and data and computer-assisted reporting, sort of evolving the role of who's in the newsroom, bringing in new types of people, and maybe, you know, a journalist. I mean, we used to talk about journalists, you know, becoming the one-man band. They had to learn all of these skills and do social media, too. But now we want to bring in specialists or maybe, you know, hybrids where, you have people who are data journalists or people who are, you know, computer-assisted reporting. What are the advantages, do you think, of that? And how difficult do you think it's going to be for newsrooms to sort of adopt that? Right. So society is evolving. The means for distribution are evolving. And so naturally, the people who are creating content and reporting the news are probably going to have to evolve as well, which means that the general structure and organization of the newsroom is going to have to be modernized, not right now, but over a period of years. So again, you know, I'm a futurist and I'll be the first person to tell you that I cannot predict the future. There's too many variables, <laughs> right? However, I've got plenty of models and frameworks that I use regularly to reduce the amount of uncertainty. So, you know, if I was a young journalist or if I was a mid-career manager within a news organization, you know, right now I would be working very hard to try to reduce the uncertainty that is ahead, which does not mean that you're going to be able to paint a picture of exactly what the year 2029 looks like. But what we can absolutely do is say, let's reduce all of the uncertainties that we possibly can to generate some plausible ideas of what, what the road ahead is going to look like and where the forks in that road are, where the possible twists and turns are so that we can make better decisions today and plan in advance for that. Looking over the trends report again, I looked at it when you first distributed it, and, and today I sort of refresh my memory. I went through it, and then I noticed something I didn't know the first time, which is you had a little thing about um, how we were wrong about social isolation. How do you say that word? Isolationism. And it's funny because I had a conversation with somebody I was writing a story for a month or two ago, and he, we were talking about podcasts. He said, well, you know, podcasting is just a symbol – um, you know, it's a sign of, of people becoming more isolated. And I was like, no, I don't think that's the case. And I don't really like, think that's what, what technology is, is doing. How wrong were we? It's perspective, right? So when I was a little kid, we mostly played outside, you know, yeah. or we had friends over to play in our house. You know, there wasn't other stimulus. So yes, I had a computer, but the early computer games weren't like fun to play with other people. You know, if I think of my eight-year-old right now, she has many more opportunities just by virtue of the fact that she's eight in the year 2019. So she can still go outside and play with friends, but she can also stay inside and play Minecraft 
with those friends in a, in a different place. And she can also go out to a space like a virtual reality arcade and have digital experiences with other people together. When we think about isolationism and when that gets brought up, you know, it's, it's somebody's response to change from what they were familiar with or what they experienced, which is why, you know, in the report, we have a scenario about us being wrong about social isolationism. By that, I mean, not me or us. We never saw that as a future trend, but sort of the general idea that that was going to be a problem. So, you know, you're out, you've been out on the road a lot, flogging this book. So tell me about it. Why did you want to write about AI? What was the, the driving force behind that? So, you know, over the past, I don't know, decade, in all of the work that I've done, artificial intelligence has sort of organically become a part of whatever that work is in some way, whether it's research or working with a client or, you know, whatever. And increasingly, what I discovered over this period of time was that, you know, there are just a handful of companies that are building out the architecture, the framework, it's their patents. They overwhelmingly have the lion's share of patents. They're incredibly well capitalized, which means they can attract the best talent, you know, and while these companies may technically offer open source solutions, you got to plug everything else about your organization, including its data into one of these companies in order to make them work. So that kept leading me back to the, you know, I was a journalist before I was a futurist and the journalist in me kept asking the same question without resolution over and over and over again, which is, you know, what happens when we consolidate tremendous power among just a few companies and just a few people who work inside of those companies that will ultimately result in a technology that is designed to make decisions for all of us, right? What, what happens then? And that was really the question that I was chasing after. And in the process of chasing after that question, I wound up with a bunch of other questions that were unsettling. And it occurred to me that you know, we in the United States have three epicenters of power, not one. So yes, there is Washington, D.C., where the seat of our government is. However, that government uh, has to function alongside Silicon Valley, which is our West Coast capital. You know, Silicon Valley and the Pacific Northwest, which is the tech sector. And they are in a codependent relationship with our financial center in New York City. So we're sort of set up for serious problems. And I think there's an assumption that everybody's playing nicely and working together pretty well. And that's incorrect. The Valley has an antagonistic relationship most of the time. Transactional, like the best possible days, or it's a transactional relationship, you know, and investors demand quick returns because these are, you know, private publicly traded uh, companies, you know, and, and they expect returns. And our government has basically stopped funding outside of military applications to stop funding basic research into science and tech. This is terrible. And it's the opposite of what I was seeing out of China. So to me, this dimension of the story of artificial intelligence, you know, which I think has been talked about quite a bit, AI has constantly talked about, but always with a lot of misplaced optimism and fear, there was the real story that we needed to get to so that we can prevent some of the catastrophic outcomes that I see on the horizon and start on the difficult work of making 
difficult choices under very challenging circumstances so that we can get to better actions. That's why. That's why. You know, and history has shown us that, that large corporations have our best interests in mind, right? Are you being sarcastic? <laughs> I think I'm being sarcastic. I mean, yes and no. I mean, here's the thing. I don't think that these nine companies, you know, there's six in the United States, three in China. The Chinese companies are Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. The U.S. part, I call the G-Mafia. So that's Google, Amazon, Microsoft, IBM, Facebook, and Apple. It's been my observation in working with them and talking with people who work there that, that these companies do not, I don't think that they are intentionally causing harm. I don't think that Apple or that Amazon or Google, when it's been discovered that you know devices have cameras in them or microphones and they weren't disclosed or people's data are being used in different ways, you know, I don't think that these companies are intentionally trying to cause harm. I think what's happening is that they are under significant pressure to monetize and to commercialize technologies. And the government has been asleep at the wheel and hasn't been kicking in the kind of funds that might have incentivized them away from some of their current activities. So I I, I just, I don't see it that way. Facebook is different. And I think that Facebook has made some choices I don't think it's just disorganization at Facebook. I think that there has been some intent to intentionally, you know, I think that some decisions have been made knowing the downstream negative implications, but I, I just don't see that with Amazon and with Google and Apple or Microsoft and IBM. Yeah. And do you think that there's just been a lack of, you know, people considering the ethical considerations of these things? Is there, are things going so quickly that's just not being addressed or, or taken into account? So I think, yes, operationally, these organizations have not codified their vision and you know, there's a lot that would have to be infused into the organization that ranges from bringing on board chief ethics officers who have, you know, who aren't just figureheads, but have actual say uh, in decision making to codifying and making extremely transparent how various systems work. There hasn't been an impetus to do that. There's been no incentive to making the technologies, the frameworks interoperable across systems or even our data portable across systems. There's been no impetus or financial incentive. And my concern is that, and what we're starting to see now, is that outside agencies are going to decide that regulation is the only way forward. You know, yeah. So we're already seeing in the United States as well as outside in the EU, the OECD, you know, we're, we're starting to see conflicting regulatory frameworks pop up. Totally not making this up. A couple hours ago today, I saw there's a group of evangelical Christians who have hmm. developed their own framework for what AI should be. I think a rational person would say, this is terrific that people have finally taken an interest, but this is the wrong way to go about fixing our future to have this like scattershot approach. It's crazy, especially given what China is doing. Yeah. You talked a little bit about how you came up with this book and you know, how you sort of brought in lots of different ideas. Let's talk, talk before we wrap up about your, your, your writing process. You've written a few books. Do you usually just come up with like an, like one big idea and, and you sort of chew on it for a while and it sort of presents itself or do you, do you go out and, and say, okay, I want to write a book about X and, and just, you know, do as much reporting, research, et cetera, as you can. Sure. So I can tell you the, the what answer to that question first, and then I'll tell you the why. So the what answer to that question is, 
on a normal day, if I'm not traveling, you know, somewhere around five to six hours of my day is spent researching and reading and mapping and modeling. And, you know, over time, if I wind up with a stack of information that's just about the, you know, like usually the, the stories present themselves, right? Sometimes that's fine and it's, a, it's, an, it's an article that I'll write for Wired. Or sometimes there's so much data and evidence piling up that it becomes obvious to me that whatever this issue is, is one we have not yet, we're not addressing uh, in any systemic way. And I feel compelled to tell people, um, <laughs> you know, what they don't seem to know. And so this, the big nine, my most recent book, you know, if you're somebody who works in data science or machine learning somewhere, you're going to read the early chapters and say, well, there's nothing new here because you already know what artificial narrow intelligence is. If you're somebody who works in policy, you're gonna read parts of the policy section where I explain how our rules get made and say, well, there's not that much there that's new. That's missing the point. The policy people are supposed to, like I wrote the tech stuff for them and I wrote the policy stuff for the tech people and the entire book, including the scenarios in the middle, which read like speculative fiction is written for everybody. So, so that's kind of how, how it happens. And I, I guess I will, you and everybody listening to the show will be the first ones to know, although I don't think I'm technically supposed to announce this. My next book is on genomics and genetic editing, because I see that as another key uh, issue. So that's how it happens. Writing books for me is not a fun process. It's very, very, very difficult, complex work. It's a lot. Writing a book is hard grueling work. That said, I love writing because I can, you know, sit for eight hours, shut out the, the outside world, single task. So just write with nothing, no meetings. It's, it's like, it's my excuse to say, I can't meet with you for four months. Sorry. I, you know, and so for me, it's kind of like a, a wonderful escape from my day-to-day -day work. I drive everybody crazy around me when I'm writing. It, it's a four-month sabbatical that you deliver a product at the end, pretty much. It is, and it's. Um, it, I know that it's not fun for the people that I live with. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm glad that you shared that because you know, I, I like the idea that you're doing this research and you've got all this stuff on your desk, and by doing that research and you're, you're feeding your brain and and you can see all the different parts of it. To you, it's like, well, yeah, there's a story here. There's something that people need to know that they're not putting all these pieces together because maybe the policy people are paying attention to the policy and the technical people are, are paying attention to the technical stuff. But looking at the big picture and bringing all these different pieces together, I, you know, I think that's, you know, that's that's value. And I think, you know, I appreciate you writing these books because they're, they're, they're great reads. Amy, I've taken a lot of your time, but thank you very much. This is always great talking to you. You're a smart person, and I love listening to a smart person talk. Thanks. It's always fun. I love being on the podcast. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emil Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.
When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.